Hello out there to all of you queer history buffs. I am Julian Rushbrook, your humble host of this podcast, The History Most Queer. If this is your first time listening to this, well, let me get you a little acquainted with this show. Here I will take you on journeys through time and space to learn about the parts of history that are often forgotten, or in the case of many states in these United States, outright banned from being taught. Specifically, these historical figures are going to be LGBTQIA+. But really, they won't just be historical people. Gods and devils, monsters and heroes, all sorts will also make up the stories told here. The idea is to let folks out there know that queer folks have always been an important part of every society that has ever existed. Now, for this month of November, I thought it would be a fun idea to honor Native American History Month by looking at some queer first American stories. This week, the subject of this particular episode will be someone who was a bit of a celebrity when they visited Washington, D.C. in 1886 to meet with President Grover Cleveland. Her name was Wiwa, and she was a Zuni person that caused quite a sensation in the nation's capital. One of her friends, Matilda Stevenson, would write of her. She was perhaps the tallest person in Zuni, certainly the strongest, both mentally and physically. She had a good memory, not only for the lore of her people, but for all that she heard of the outside world. She possessed an indomitable will and an insatiable thirst for knowledge. Her likes and dislikes were intense. She would risk anything to serve those she loved. But toward those who crossed her path, she was vindictive. Though severe, she was considered just. When she arrived in D.C., she was described as a most intelligent young woman of 25 years and a princess and priestess of her tribe. In a town that had many royal visitors through the years, this princess was a bit unusual. She did not have an armed cortege of guards and ladies-in-waiting. Instead, she walked the streets alone. At an imposing six feet tall, this Zuni woman caught the attention of the well-to-do ladies of high society. Journalists would remark at her large frame and more masculine appearance. Of course, as I'm sure that you are already guessing, 
this woman was someone who falls within our queer spectrum. She was born in 1849 to the Danashikwe or Badger clan via her mother's side and to the Bishikwe or the Dogwood clan on her father's side. She was from what is now New Mexico and would, at a young age, find herself and her brother orphaned. It appears that her parents died of a smallpox epidemic. After her parents' death, she was adopted into the wealthy family of her paternal aunt. Parents' wealth and influence put her into positions of ceremonial power and esteem that might otherwise have been closed to her. Wewa was born male, but as she grew, displayed traits that indicated to her community that she was a Lahmana. This was a third gender among her people. And she and others like her would perform functions typically attributed to women as well as men in both social and ceremonial functions. Likewise, the gender lines were crossed when it came to clothing and other forms of outward displays of being. In Huiwa's case, she would wear the clothing associated with both men and women and became quite adept at weaving and other arts that were more often conducted by men, while at the same time grinding corn and working with ceramics which women were more involved with making. Contemporary Lamana can often be found participating in the Pan-Indian Two-Spirit community. 19th century Zuni societies were made up of shared households, with the matrilineal groups being the managers. Labor was divided up and assigned by these groups. The religious side of life was of great importance, as this helped to bind the society together. The religious structure of Zuni societies was based upon ancestral spirits, or kachinas. These kachinas, along with the matrilineal heads of households, helped guide people along the six directions of life, north, east, south, west, upwards and downwards. Staying centered involved the spiritual and community elements. Gender-fluid individuals in the community were often tasked with caring for sacred places, weaving cloth, caring for the ill and elderly, teaching children, and even the burying of the dead. All of this work was vital in connecting the living with the ancestors. The Zuni culture of the 19th century had a very fluid concept of gender. Children were raised genderless, and siblings used a gender-neutral term, honey, to refer to each other. In the latter decades of that century, the Smithsonian hired Matilda Cox Stevenson to study the Zuni. She was the first ethnologist hired by the Institute who was a woman 
and her work documenting the lives of Zuni people would record the different varieties of gender found amongst Zuni and other Pueblo people of the Southwest. So the concept that various communities had more nuanced views of gender and sexuality is by no means new or strictly European. In fact, it's probably more accurate to say that the idea that gender is binary is a more European viewpoint rather than a global universal concept. The reason for studying all of the Pueblo people was due to their shared origins. The Anasazi, or ancestor Pueblo, as the word Anasazi is of Navajo origin and means ancient enemy. Needless to say, the current Pueblo societies are not too hip on their ancestors being referred to in a rather negative fashion. Anyway, they were a group of people who lived in larger structures around the Four Corners region. So, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado. The ancestor Pueblo people had connections with Mesoamerican societies, and there was surely cultural sharing between these two civilizations as far back as 700 of the Common Era. According to their descendants, their culture did not disappear, but rather merged with other groups or moved due to climate change events that caused desertification in areas where they had settled for centuries. Their struggles with the environment, as well as with other groups such as the aforementioned Navajo and later the Spanish, would harden these people against adversity. Which, if we go back to earlier and revisit that story of Wewa walking all over Washington, D.C. alone, makes sense. She came from a long line of tough people who had been tempered by all manner of struggles. A princess on the streets of D.C. was perfectly capable of handling herself. Stevenson was one of many ethnologists, anthropologists, archaeologists, and others who were swooping into the Southwest in hopes to document, catalog, and even curate collections of the various first Americans who who were still living on their native lands. By this point, people such as the Cherokee and Seminole had found themselves displaced their cultures in danger of being forever lost. While having an earnest desire to preserve the knowledge of these other people, there is often a rather arrogant manner in which these real living people were treated by these American intellectuals. Missionaries were another group of assailants launching an all-out war against the heathen ways of the various nations in the Southwest, whether they were Catholic, Baptist, or Mormons. These missionaries went, holy books in hand, to get the Zuni and other Pueblo to renounce their, quote, evil ways, and their methods could often be brutal. 
Mary de Sitt was one missionary in particular who had her sights set on Wewa. This woman had goals of replacing the various languages in Indian country with English, wiping out witchcraft, and attacking the Lamana, Wewa. While the Zuni had no real concern for Wewa's genitals, it was all that Mary Desette could think about. Even though this woman's hatred for queer people was going on in the 1890s, it would be almost comical if it were not so dangerous that many religious zealots today are still very much obsessed with queer genitals, what it is that we're doing. What brought our subject to the nation's capital has everything to do with the history of the Zuni and their interactions with Anglo-Americans. As I mentioned before, Wewa was born in 1849, and this was just a few years after Americans started to move into what is now New Mexico. With the Apache and Diné people being traditional enemies of the Zuni, it would make sense that they would turn to these new arrivals in hopes of forming an alliance. At the encouragement of Matilda Stevenson, Wewa endeavored to make that journey to the District of Columbia. For Stevenson, this was more about increasing her prestige in academic circles. Now, I don't want to completely paint her as bad. She was, after all, the white woman that was most trusted by the Zuni at this time. She had far more respect for their ways and befriended many of their people, including Wewa. Still, it was quite a feather in her cap to have an Indian princess come to the Smithsonian. In 1885, the two would travel back to D.C. As I mentioned earlier, when Wewa arrived, she was the talk of the town. This delighted Stevenson, as this made her own name more prominent. From December to June, she would help Stevenson in identifying Zuni cultural artifacts, as well as attending balls and other social events, such as tea with the Washington elite. At one dance in particular, a reporter wrote, Wewa, the Zuni princess, who took part in this dance, wore a glorious blanket of white, embroidered in the royal fashion. Her tawny black locks were tied with green ribbon. She betrayed some surprise at the curious movements of the dance and said she had not seen anything just like it among her people, but it was very nice notwithstanding. The whole affair, of course, cannot be understood without contending with how ridiculously racist a great deal of the interactions were. People marveled at this Indian celebrity, but their 
notions of womanhood were challenged as she towered over her white friend, Stevenson, who would herself later point out that we was time in D.C. even lightened her skin. I mean, you can't make this up. There was also this bizarre event, uh, specifically this aforementioned dance. So, a so-called Indian dance was performed by a group of white men in allegedly genuine Apache style. The Washington Post would describe this dance thusly. There was the civilized version of the war cry, the circling about a captive group. There was a brandishing of tomahawks and waving of feathers. And in the midst, there was a real Zuni princess to give the thing local color. Apparently, the dance had been orchestrated to entertain the crowd, and Weewa was asked to perform in it and to make it more authentic. The National Tribune wrote a bit about this. From the first, Weewa took the greatest interest in the Indian dance and attended several of the rehearsals as a spectator, and made some valuable suggestions. Finally, she was persuaded to appear in it herself, but it required much coaxing before she gave her consent, for as a priestess in Zuni dancing is to her a religious rite, and she had conscientious scruples about being in a dance given for the amusement of spectators. So, she spent three hours praying aloud to seek the guidance of her gods on the day before the dance, and finally consented to take part in the dance. She painted a prayer stick and carried it with her to the theater and waved it while the dance was occurring, keeping perfect time in the dance. Even though there was a severe lack of cultural sensitivity by the white people who wanted to perform this dance, it should be pointed out that Weewa stepped effortlessly into her educator role, offering advice and real cultural exchanges with these people. Reporters would write more, like about how Weewa was introduced to Easter eggs and that it was a reminder of how civilized white Americans were in contrast to the exotic and superstitious natives. I mean, they are painted chicken eggs. I was not aware that that was the pinnacle of civilized art and culture. Who knew? It was her skills with textiles that brought her even more fame beyond the Zuni community in D.C. She demonstrated her loom and her weaving to the wonder of the American crowds. The gulf now was even more apparent, for no white women weaved cloth 
all of their textiles were produced in factories. She was seen as a living museum specimen, not too dissimilar from the human zoos that would look lock up black women and children behind bars for spectators or freak shows put on by P.T. Barnum. Wewa was also conducting her own ethnographic study. For her part, she saw Americans as very loud and showy. The women of Washington were a constant complaint of hers as they talk too much. I find it fun, actually, the idea that this person being paraded about like some carnival attraction is also looking outward at the real circus going on around her. Now, of course, her mission was not to perform for cameras and gawking audiences. The real reason for her visit was sitting in the Oval Office. President Grover Cleveland would meet with her. She even gave a handmade gift to Cleveland and his new wife, Frances, in honor of their wedding. The president and the princess would discuss the issues of corrupt Indian agents and overbearing missionaries. She wanted to request an Indian agent to come who was not corrupt and would help protect her and her people and their interests from all of these various assaults. The president was a man of his word and sent the agent. Her diplomatic skills were just another one of her many talents. It is really something to think about. She was an artist, spiritual leader, teacher, and ambassador. She helped to guide her friends, family, and neighbors along the six directions. In 1896, Matilda Stevenson wrote of the death of her friend, Wewa, who was only 49. She fell ill with heart failure, but her community came to her side. However, despite all of their efforts, their beloved Wewa died. It was a great tragedy to her people, and they mourned. She had worked tirelessly to protect them and their way of life. Over the next few decades, despite her celebrity status, other queer First Americans would have to learn to be covert, code-switching, and hiding their truth and their place in their respective communities. The missionaries would work hard to re-educate the Zuni, Hopi, and others, and very often succeeded. Languages, customs, and even respect for their fellow queer community members would be nearly erased. The assimilation tactics that the United States had employed on other communities would not exclude the Zuni from their mission to impose homogeneity. Thankfully, efforts to remember this old knowledge and this tried and true way of being are bearing fruit. 
the fact that Weewa's story still circulates and inspires new generations is proof of that. Well, that concludes this little episode. I hope that all of you enjoyed hearing about Weewa and her efforts to protect the Zuni people. If you are curious to see images of her, you can come on over to Instagram, where you can check out our page at the History Most Queer. If you find that my pronunciation of various things is way off, or if I got a fact wrong, or hey, if you have a suggestion for a topic, you can send an email to ahistorymostqueer at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. So, enjoy the remainder of your week, and come back to hear some more fun queer stories on your next History Hump Day. Bye-bye.